All right, Genesis chapter 10, uh, verses 8 and 9. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Now let's jump down to chapter 11. I'll read the first nine verses. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had for brick, excuse me, and they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. And all God's people said, Amen. Our Heavenly Father, again, we are so thankful that we have your word, even your Son, that we might look to him and to you for all things. We pray, dear Lord, that you will open up your word to us this morning, that we might see Christ, and that he is the victor over all things, for he hath overcome the world, even Babylon. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the title of this morning's sermon is Babylon Destroyed, Babylon Destroyed. So I want to focus on that. I want to talk about the building of Satan's kingdom, and I want to contrast that with the Lord's kingdom, for there are two kingdoms um, in this world. One is visible and one is not visible. One is Satan's um, construction, working through men, and the other is the Lord's construction, working through his saints. So picking up from where we left off last week, um, you recall that I made a case that Nimrod is a type of Satan. He's set before us in Scripture here. He's a mighty hunter of men, and that's a peculiar thing to put in a, the Bible, you know, unless you're, um, you know, unless it's a magazine about guns and rifles and about going out and hunting, you know, literally. Um, so the fact that it's in here, we would think there's something um, interesting about that, and indeed there is. He's hunting men to build a kingdom for himself, to lift himself up um, like Satan did. So if we look over at, at Isaiah chapter 14, and we'll read verses 12 through 14, we see here what starts in verse 1 as a um, parable against um, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, morphs very clearly um, into one that speaks about Satan himself. In verse 12 it says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. 
I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And so we see here Satan is lifting himself up. We see that there are five I wills here, that he is going to accomplish these different things. But I don't want to ruin the end of the story. The very next verse here, the God says, Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. So no sooner do we read about Satan lifting himself up to glorify himself, to build a kingdom for himself, and God says, well, no, this is how it's going to go here. You shall be brought down and cast down into hell. And if you've read the book of Revelation, uh, you know that the Lord does toss Satan and all of his minions into the lake of fire. But we should appreciate that now in this day that we live in, that Satan is alive and well and very active indeed. He has an organizational structure, part of which is articulated for us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, where it talks about principalities and powers and rulers. And so he works through men, he works through governments, and he works through false religions. And the scripture says that the beginning of his kingdom is here in Genesis chapter 10. Interestingly enough, we see that the names of these are Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kelna. Well, Babel means confusion, Eric means long, and we know that this kingdom will continue as long as Christ tarries in coming. When the Lord comes the second time, that will be the end of it. Akkad means subtle, and we know that's the methodology by which Satan primarily works. He was the subtle, most subtle of all the beasts of the field. The Lord teaches us that in Genesis chapter 3. And Kalna means fortress of Anu, Anu being the king of gods. So Satan, with respect to his organizational structure, is the one who is ahead. He is the god of this world, and he's the one who's ahead of all of those um, principalities, powers, and rulers of the darkness of this world. So those, uh, his kingdom begins there, and it moves out from Shiner until it covers the entire world. Now, in Revelation chapter 13, that our deacon read for us this morning, we can appreciate in verse 1 that it says of Revelation 13, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. But the fact that you see this thing ride out, rise out of the sea is indicative that his organizational structure, as it's manifest on the earth, is comprised of men, because the seas represent people. Now, in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, the Lord lays this out for us in a very clear way. Now, that was written 600 or so years before Christ came. And um, in this case, it's um, with respect to the kingdom of Babylon. Daniel has been taken captive into the, king of Daniel, uh, into the kingdom of Babylon, and he is subject to King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, you'll recall in chapter 2, has a dream where he sees a figure. And this figure is comprised of basically five different parts, primarily four, the top, the head being gold, um, the breast and the arm being silver, the belly and the thigh being brass, the legs iron and the feet iron and clay, indicating it's a composition of the legs. Now, we know from history, and the Lord does tell us uh, clearly in other places, that the first kingdom represents the kingdom of Babylon, the second one is the Medi Persians, the third is the Greeks, and the fourth is the Romans, and then there's a um, composition of the Romans extending forth until Christ comes. Now, when we get to Daniel chapter 7, um, Daniel has a dream where he sees a beast rise out of the sea. He sees four beasts. The first one is a lion, the second one is a bear, the third one is a leopard, and the fourth one is a terrible beast. 
and I'm going to read about the fourth one uh, briefly here. Um, the fourth beast, let me see, it is in verse 7 of Daniel 7. It says, And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. And it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So this fourth beast that Daniel sees coming out in his dream is consistent with the beast that he sees in Revelation chapter 13. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 2, it says, And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his authority. So this fourth beast that Daniel sees is consistent with the beast that's revealed to us in Revelation 13. That is the beast um, that who is in the world today. It's the governmental powers and authorities that uh, we are subject to, and that beast is exceedingly um, terrible. Um, it talks about in the scriptures that it, um, I want to read what it says here. Um, it devours and breaks into pieces and stamps the residue with its feet. It is extremely um, ferocious. It has an incredible appetite for destruction and mayhem. Um, I'd mentioned this once before with respect to democide. It was a word I didn't even know existed. But democide has to do with people that have been killed by government decree and government authority. It does not include people that are actually the combatants in a war. The last century, 262 million people were killed via government authority, government decrees. And so this would include great famines that uh, took place in China because of Mao's revolution where he took uh, farmers and made them doctors and made doctors into farmers. He flipped everything up on its head, and we indeed saw our country moving into this kind of a cultural revolution a number of years ago where we are moving away from a meritocracy and putting people in position based on their ethnic diversity and their diversity in terms of uh, um, certain views that they hold, which are blasphemous with respect to God. We've got to have people on the board of directors that are um, um, homosexuals. They are, have to be transvestites. They, we need to have people that are undergoing sex change operations. We need to have this diversity of lifestyles um, on positions of a control and authority. And when you do that, to move away from a meritocracy and take people who have gifts to do certain professions away from those professions, there's going to be mayhem and death and destruction. Now, most recently, of course, in our lives, we have seen the pandemic associated with the COVID virus, which was made in a laboratory and people have said was um, intentionally released. So this would be an example of democide because a large number of people were killed by the release of that um, virus. And not only so, but also a number of people have been killed by the vaccine which was forced upon people by government decree. So when you include all of the people that were killed by virtue of the government releasing that virus and forcing people to have vaccines, all of the people that committed suicide because they had their livelihoods taken away from them, all of the people that starved because they were locked and bolted into places, buildings in China so that they could fully quarantine certain cities, you have really a very large number of people. Now, you've all heard of SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, which is interesting, if you look at the statistics, it's directly related to the number of vaccines a child is required to take. The more vaccines a child is required to take, the more likelihood they are to die of SIDS. 
There is a new term that I've heard recently. It's called SADS, Sudden Adult Death Syndrome. And that is a new term that has come out of people who appear outwardly to be normally quite healthy are dropping dead. And we've all heard about athletes in the recent um, months who are dropping dead of heart attacks. 20-year-old athletes, um, world-class athletes, professional athletes are dropping dead of heart attacks. So a new term has been um, come up with, sudden adult death syndrome. So the dragon gives his power to the beast, and the beast truly is dreadful, and what it does is it grinds people underneath him. In Revelation 13, 2, we should appreciate that it is um, the dragon, which is that old serpent, the devil, and Satan that gives the beast his power. Um, In Daniel chapter 2 and 7, as I mentioned to you, the beast is the government. It's government authorities. It's the government structure. And um, there have been different governments throughout time um, that they lay bef- that the Lord lays before us in Daniel chapter two and chapter seven. In verses five and six of Revelation chapter thirteen, we read that a mouth is given to the beast to blaspheme. So, what would that mouth mouth be? We certainly have all been subject to it. Well, that would be the mass media, and it would be social media, and it would be all forms of false information, misinformation. Uh, withholding information, you know, censorship, equivocations, things that where they will release a little bit of truth, but the intent of which is to mislead. And all of these things the Lord has granted them to do as part of his way of dividing, you know, the uh, wheat from the chaff, but they use those methodologies to blaspheme God. They blaspheme God, blaspheme his name, which is Christ. They blaspheme his tabernacle which is Christ, of course, and the church, and he blasphemes them that dwell in heaven, which would include all the saints and God's angelic hosts. You recall, as a Christian, we are both present here on the earth, and we are with the Lord because we are united with him. So to um, blaspheme them that dwell in heaven would be to blaspheme all Christians and God's angelic host. Now, verse 7 of Revelation 13, we read that the beast has power over all kindreds, and tongues and nations. And indeed, that's what the government is. It is power over all of the people that are all over the world, through which beast he makes war with the saints. And we read also that he is going to overcome them. And this we've seen throughout the history of the world, uh, that the Christian church has suffered persecution. And uh, most obviously, it was seen in um, the days of the Romans, when the Roman was, Romans were persecuting the church, and they were casting Christians who by, must by needs meet secretly. They were casting them into the arena to be devoured by lions. Obviously, it was a play upon what we read in the Scripture about Satan goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So they were trying to shove that down the Christians' throats and putting them in arenas and seeing who the lions would, in fact, devour. We also saw it during the inquisitions, the various inquisitions of the Roman Catholic Church where they would go out and persecute anybody that didn't bow the knee to the Pope as opposed to bowing the knee to Christ. Many Christians were burned at the stake for holding the truths that they do hold true even to this day. Now, in the Old Testament, um, in Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about how things went for some of the saints back then. So I want us to appreciate that this persecution 
you know, started in, um, actually started in Genesis chapter 3 with respect to Satan himself, but with respect to the beast, his earthly kingdom, it began in, Revela- in uh, um, Genesis chapter 11. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11, we have set before us, which is uh, commonly talked to the walk of, spoken about as the walk of faith. It talks, chronicles the lives of certain prominent Christians featured in scriptures. And then you get down to verse 35, and it takes a turn that, um, I'm going to say it takes a turn for the worse, but nevertheless, it's setting before us the truth. Verse 35, it says, women receive their dead raised to life again. Well, that's wonderful. Everything before that was good too. And others were tortured, we don't like to read about that, not accepting the deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Obviously, we saw that in the um, Inquisition where people would not um, um, deny Christ as they were told to do, uh, lest they would be uh, killed. And so they would not, um, they would accept the torture. They would not accept the deliverance that was offered. They would not deny Christ. Um, so they uh, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. The world hates Christians. It has always hated Christians, and it will always hate Christians. That's just the way it is. We are rejected by the world and considered its offscouring. But the truth is, the Lord says here, the world is not worthy of us. Um, verse 38 of Revelation, um, excuse me, verse 38 of Hebrews 11. Of whom the world was not worthy, they wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And these, all having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God, having provided something better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. In other words, we're all going to glory together. They didn't receive that glory while they were in the earth. Uh, Abraham did not receive the promise. While he was on the earth, it's not until he went to glory to the heavenly Jerusalem where all of the promises come to um, fruition. So, again, I simply want us to appreciate that the trials and tribulations and the persecutions of the saint is nothing new. It is all throughout the scriptures. And so as Christians, we should not expect life to be pleasant on this world. As I said to you, the world hates the Christians. People that are friendly to you um, do not appreciate um, Christ in you, because if they did, they would not, uh, they would reject you and stay away from you. I think we talked about last week how um, I'll speak for myself. I was afraid of Christians before I became a Christian. I wanted to stay away from them. And we see that in uh, Genesis there as well, where people want to stay away from Christians because God has given the Christians power over this world because we rule and reign in Christ um, in this world. So again, we have to appreciate that we are in a spiritual warfare. We are here on this earth. We are in a spiritual warfare against principalities, against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in high places. So think of yourself as being in the foreign legion. You are in a war in a foreign land. You are in a war in Babylon. Now 2 Corinthians 5.20 reminds us that we are ambassadors. 
And so as ambassadors for Christ, we endeavor to reconcile the people of Babylon with God. Because, to be perfectly clear, God is going to destroy Satan, who is the God of this world, and he is the king of Babylon, and God is going to destroy all Babylonians. So, God has sent us out into the world to reconcile these people to God. God wants, I've got to be careful with that language, we are to go out into the world and we are to tell people about the, their impending doom, that the wages of sin is death. However, the gift of God is eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. So, either bow the knee now, surrender now, or you're going to be destroyed. So, everybody that is not part of the kingdom of God is part of Satan's kingdom. And back in Daniel chapter 2, the Lord lays this all out, 600 years B.C., how this is going to go for the kingdoms of this world, how it's going to go for the beast. In Daniel chapter 2, I'll read verses 34 through 35 because it speaks about Christ destroying the, uh, this, this image. In Daniel chapter 2, it's that image made of gold, silver, brass, iron, and then iron and clay. In verse 34... He's speaking of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had seen, and he says, Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands. Well, what do you suppose that stone is? It's Christ. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and broke them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, And the gold, he's working right back up to the top of the head, broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. Those beasts, the beasts, excuse me, the image, all the governmental authorities of this world are going to be destroyed. That stone that smote the image became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. Um, Down to uh, verse 44 now. And in the days of those kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, that would be Christ through the cross, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. The Lord is assuring Nebuchadnezzar that this is the course of history. This is how it's going to run. There's going to be these four kingdoms. You're the first one. And then it's going to run itself all the way until the Lord comes and destroys them all. And it is certain. And the kingdom that destroys all of these is the Lord's kingdom. And that is an eternal kingdom. It shall be um, forever. Um, Over in Daniel chapter 7, again, we read something very similar. And this one had to do with the Daniel's dream about the four beasts. In verse 9... Um, next page Daniel chapter 7 verse 9 we read here and he says I beheld till the thrones were cast down and the ancient of days that's the heavenly father whose garment was uh, the ancient of days did sit whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like the pure wool His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. 
A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were open. I beheld then, because the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. He's talking about the fourth beast being destroyed, the last of the four. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominions taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is, ever, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be um, destroyed. So we should appreciate again here that the Lord is telling us how all of this is going to play out throughout the course of the history of the world. Babylon begins in uh, chapter 10 of Genesis and it ends in Revelation 18 where the Lord talks about its destruction. Read about that in Revelation 18, the destruction. God will be victorious and indeed he is victorious having overcome the beast already. In John 16, 33, the Lord tells us he said, in the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Christ, through the cross, has overcome Babylon. But don't overlook what he's telling you here. He says, ye shall have tribulation in this world. So we should not think it a strange things, all of the things that we witness happening in this world that seem absolutely upside down to us, because indeed they are upside down because they blaspheme God and they are set up endeavoring to attack and overthrow God's kingdom, which of course is not um, possible. But Christ is telling us we are going to have tribulation. Now, since before the foundation of the world, God has been building his kingdom, the earthly manifestation of which begins in Genesis chapter 1. In chapter 1, we begin to see he makes man in the earth, tells him to go out and be fruitful and multiply and to have dominion. That has to do with God building his kingdom through men on this earth. Satan starts building his earthly kingdom here in Genesis chapter 10 and chapter 11. That's what the clear language says. Both of these Earthly kingdoms have earthly representations. In Genesis chapter 11, it's Babel. It's the city and the tower. In um, Exodus, we read about the tabernacle. And then in um, Kings and Chronicles, we read about Solomon's temple. And then when we get to the New Testament, we read about the true church of God. So all of these things, uh, God's kingdom and Satan's kingdoms, have earthly uh, representations. With respect to Babel, I would share with you that it absolutely reeks of death. It reeks of death. It is built by man. It says in there a couple of times, let us build. Let us build. It's rooted in pride that man would make a name for himself. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us lift ourselves up. And so the um, impetus behind it is sin. It's one of pride. It's what we read in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. So it's built by man, and so therefore it reeks of sin. The Lord tells us in Genesis 3.18 that everything that we build will resort, result in thorns and 
thistles. And that's because of our sin. In Romans chapter 3, the Lord sets before us. He says, there is, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. This is in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. So together, these Babylonians are endeavoring to build a tower up into heaven that they would make a name for themselves. Together, they shall be unprofitable. Individually, they do, they do no good, and together, it doesn't get better when you bring a bunch of sinners together. It will come to nothing, and ultimately, it's going to be destroyed, as we read in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, and in Revelation chapter 18. It's going to be destroyed. So what is the building? What are the building blocks of Babylon? Well, it said, instead of using stone... They used bricks, and bricks, of course, are made out of the clay of the earth, which represents man, and they are burnt thoroughly. They don't fit together very well, therefore they have to use slime for mortar. And uh, slime in the Hebrew here is asphalt, and asphalt, as you know, is a flammable material. So everything associated with Babylon has to do with fire. It's going to be burned up. We read about that in Revelation 18, that Babylon will be burned up. And first, Second uh, Peter chapter 3 talks about how this world, how this earth, and all the works therein are going to be burned up. Babylon is in view there, obviously. It's going to be burned up. In Revelation 18, 9, it says, And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived um, deliciously with her, meaning Babylon, shall wail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning. So Babylon is going to be destroyed, but right now we are in the thick of a battle, but I want us to appreciate how it's going to end. Babylon is going to be destroyed. Now, in principle, the Lord tells us in Psalm 127, verse 1, this is in principle, he says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. It is nothing but, nothing but vanity could possibly come from Babylon. Nothing but vanity could possibly come from it. It's going to be destroyed. They are truly laboring in vain. Unless the Lord build the house, they that build it labor in vain. So I want to contrast um, what Babel is and how it's constructed with God's kingdom, um, which is built by God. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, the Lord talks about his church, that he says that upon this rock, meaning himself, I will build my church. Christ is going to build his church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. It will be victorious. It will go forth. It will actually fill the earth, as we read about in the book of Daniel. He will be successful. And he tells us how he's going to build it in verse 21 of Matthew 16, where he talks about he must needs go up to Jerusalem and be mocked and scourged and suffer many things, be crucified, and then raise again, be raised again from the dead. And in a broader sense, he's talking, of course, about the temple of his body, which he told the disciples right in the beginning of the Gospel of John, chapter 2. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And he spake to them of the temple of his body. So what we see in the church or in the world with respect to the tabernacle in the wilderness and Solomon's temple, we see a um, physical representation about what he's doing in the spiritual realm with respect to his tabernacle of his body. This 
The true temple is not to be found on this earth. The true city of God is not to be found on this earth. In Hebrews 11.10, it speaks of Abraham, and it tells us that Abraham, as we know that he's going to be wandering all throughout um, the promised land, what that which will become the promised land, he never finds there what he's looking for because it says in Hebrews that he looked for a city with foundations, and you'll note he ever lived in a tent without foundations, but he's looking for a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. That's the city we are looking for, one with foundations whose builder and maker is God. And that is the heavenly city of the living God, and that you can read about in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the heavenly Mount Zion. It is not on this earth. However, it is initially represented as the tabernacle, and uh, we read about that in Hebrews chapter 5, where the Lord tells us there that um, Moses should pay attention to the instructions given to him about how to build it, because it represents things as they are in heaven, true things as they are in heaven. Um, In Hebrews chapter 8, It talks about how the things of this earth are representative of uh, heavenly things, which serve as an example and shadow of heavenly things. That's verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 8. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern. So a pattern was given to Moses that he was admonished by God that he should follow. Now, Solomon's temple, same thing. There were instructions that were given that need be followed. Now, that temple was made with stones instead of bricks, stones that were quarried from afar. 1 Kings 6-7 tells us that these stones providentially fit perfectly together when they were brought to build a temple so that the sound of a hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the construction of the temple. The stones were quarried at a distance, and they were brought in, and they fit perfectly. Revelation 5.9 would teach us that these stones represent God's elect called out of every kindred and tongue and uh, people and nation. These stones are gathered through the preaching of the gospel to God's elect. They are precious stones, They are lively stones and stones that are chosen by God. And these stones are, uh, as such as they are, are quietly conformed to the image of Christ by the indwelling presence of the Holy Ghost. And these stones, which obviously I'm speaking of the saints, of the elect, being conformed to the image of God, are conformed according to the measure of the stature of and the fullness of Christ, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So just like when you put a building together, you have a point of reference from whence all of the other dimensions are taken, from whence it is determined if things are straight and plumb and true. Christ is the individual by which we take all of our dimensions of. So there's an admonition in scriptures never to compare ourselves with each other, but only look at Christ because we are being conformed to his image. And the scripture tells us that these stones fit together perfectly as well. In Ephesians chapter 2, 
verses 19 through 22. It speaks of us. He says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household. In other words, you used to be far off. You used to be a stone way off in the somewhere else, but you've been cored and you have been brought. You're not, you used to be a stranger, but you're not anymore. You're a fellow citizen with the Christians and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord. So this, each of us fit perfectly in the body of Christ. God has given every person a gift according as he has determined that they should have, and he has brought us together as a body. Verse 22, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. So the God is quarrying his people from all over the world, bringing them together like the stones of Solomon's temple in which he uh, indwells us individually as well as corporately. And if you read about the construction of Solomon's temple, you should appreciate that once they brought all the stones together, they were overlaid with gold. And so too, when the day comes, when the Lord comes, God's glory will be manifest in us because gold obviously typifies the glory of God. So God is building his temple, his kingdom in this world of which we are a part of. Now, again, as I just mentioned, it should be obvious to us that the Bible is replete with spiritual parallels in its construction. Just as Moses was taken up into the mountain and given specific instructions about how the temple should be built, that everything would be made according to the pattern, the same thing is said of Solomon's temple in terms of how it should be built and what things should be considered. In 1 Chronicles 28, I'll pick it up in verse 11, David being the father, Solomon being the son. Obviously, there's a representation here of the heavenly father and Christ himself. It says in verse 11 of 1 Chronicles 28, Then David gave to Solomon his son the pattern of the porch and of the houses thereof and of the treasuries thereof and of the upper chambers thereof and of the inner parlors thereof and of the place of the mercy seat and of the pattern of all that he had by the Spirit. Comes by the Spirit, is communicated to the Son of the courts of the house of the Lord and of the chambers round about and of the treasuries of the house of God and of the treasuries of the uh, dedicated things. Same thing is true for the course of the priests in verse 13. Gold by weight for things that are made of gold for all the instruments and manners of surface. Same thing for silver. Gave the weight that each of these precious metals should be used in the construction of these different things. Verse 15, the weight for the candlesticks, the lamps. Um, verse 16, the weight of gold for the tables of showbread. Verse 17, gold for the flesh hooks and the bowls and the cups and of the altar in verse 18. And then in verse 19, he wants us to appreciate that. And this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me even all the works of the pattern. So the detailed instructions were given to David by the Holy Spirit. And David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and of good courage and do it. Fear not. Or be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, will be with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee, until thou hast finished all the work of the service of the house of the Lord. The same thing is said with respect to the Christians, or the same thing is certainly true with respect to the Christians. The Lord says that when he's giving his disciples 
what we call the Great Commission, to go out into the world and to teach all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you even unto the end. The Lord will never leave nor forsake his people. He's got them going out into the world and they are doing his will as he builds his kingdom. So this we do again by going out and preaching the gospel. We are gathering stones that the Lord is going to use in the construction of his temple. Now, in Acts chapter 1, the Lord says this very thing. The book opens with the Lord um, telling us that he has worked Um, that Jesus is working through the Holy Spirit in the apostles to go out into the world and to build things. He says, The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus, that's the Son, began both to do and to teach, until the day in which he, Jesus, was taken up. After that, he, Jesus, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he, Jesus, had chosen. So there he is, Jesus is reigning in heaven, And Jesus in heaven is working through the Holy Spirit, telling that the apostles what things that they need to do to go out into the world to build God's um, kingdom. Now, to that end, we read about the Apostle Paul in uh, particular, where we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the occasion where Paul was taken up into glory. And so we read there in verse 2, he says, I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth, such an one caught up to the third heaven. He's speaking about being caught up into glory, into the spiritual realm, and it is there that he is going to receive instructions. How that he, verse 4, was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful or possible for a man to utter. And down in verse 7, he says, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelation. And he speaks about receiving a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan, that he would not exalt himself. The point I'm sharing with us here is just like Moses went up into the mountain to receive instructions on how to build the tabernacle, so too was the Apostle Paul brought up into a place where he received revelation from the Lord about how to build the church. The instructions that he had were given to him by God, just like Moses received instructions from God, and just like um, David received instructions from God. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 10, the Lord, excuse me, the Lord speaking through Paul, <laughs> says that I, as a wise master builder, as a wise master builder, he lays the foundation for the church according to the grace of God given him. That's the Apostle Paul speaking about following the instructions that God has given him. And so he is a builder out there building the Lord's tabernacle according to the instructions that were given to him. And the foundation that he lays, which the first verse of the first hymn we sang today spoke about, the foundation that he lays is doctrine. It's the doctrine of Christ, which he has received by inspiration of God. That which he has received, he pens, puts on paper, And it goes out to the seven churches of the New Testament. Most, indeed, of the New Testament is written by him, but it's not a coincidence that he writes letters to seven churches, obviously showing God's perfect instructions for the construction of his tabernacle. And this is a church that Christ built upon the foundation which is laid by God, which was Christ when he went to the cross. Now, the church, as I have shared with us, will suffer attack. But again, the Lord says, 
that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. God's kingdom, his temple, and his glory are eternal. The citizens of his kingdom are there by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They are there because of the work that Christ did on the cross when he took their sins upon himself and paid the penalty for them. The citizens of God's kingdom have eternal life and they have eternal fellowship with Christ our King. Though we suffer tribulation and may may one day suffer great persecution, and we might even suffer death on behalf of the Lord, as Christians have throughout the course of history suffered death on behalf of the Lord. That may one day come to us, but we never have anything to fear. As one of the saints once said, we, while mortal, we are immortal as long as we're about the Lord's work. God will preserve us, and he will keep us, and he will prosper us as we go out in the world and do his work until such time as he determines to bring us home. And then we will go home through the portal of death. So until that time comes, we are to keep our eyes fixed on Christ our King and prayerfully enter into um, communication with him that he would reveal to us what things that he would have us to do. Time is short, and we must use our time wisely, and we must be about his work just as he was about his Father's work when he was on this world. So, as again our deacon read in Colossians chapter 3, let us keep our eyes fixed on Christ our King. Let us keep our hearts and minds on things that are above, heavenly things. And do not let Babylon get you down. Do not let Babylon get you down. On one hand, there's admonitions in the scripture about not looking at the alluring things of Babylon, but I don't think we here um, have our eyes on those things. But we do let Babylon get us down, and we should not let Babylon get us down. We have God's book. We know how it's going to end, and so we should not be dismayed. Everything is going according to God's plan. How do I know that? Well, I could generally fall upon, you know, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to them that love God, but I don't have to do that. It's in his book. He's told us how it's going to go, and it's going exactly as he said it was going to go. It's in his book. So there's no cause to be uh, dismayed. He's told us what's going to happen. He's told us what has happened before it happened, and so we look back and go, yeah, he's right. It's exactly how the way things played out. There were the Babylonians followed by the Greeks, excuse me, followed by the Medi Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. It was all laid out hundreds of years before it happened. So we have this to fall back on and go, you know, this is how he said it was going to go. It's going that way. So why would we be surprised? Now, I was talking to a saint the other day, and uh, Christians oftentimes get together and they say, well, I'm a Christian, and so I should be happy all the time. I should be at peace all of the time. You know, I should be thinking on uh, God all the time, which all of these things are true. But that is not the reality of the Christian walk. We do have the great comforter which has been given unto us, and we do have the peace that passeth all understanding. That is true. We are told not to lean on our own understanding, uh, but to trust in the Lord in all things. However, the reality of our lives is just like the reality of the lives of the Christians whose lives we're going to follow in um, Genesis in particular, But if you look throughout the scriptures, I challenge you to find any Christian that was happy all the time. I can't find one of them. Um, 
So our lives are just like the lives of the Christians that are set before us in scriptures. Think about Adam and Eve. What would it be like to have one son murder another son? You lose two sons. One is dead and the other one has been banished. You've lost two sons at once. Think about Noah. How would you wrap your head around the fact that everybody you knew, except for the seven in the boat where you were killed, that God wiped everything out, every city out, every town out, every, every stick of wood that man laid upright to build something, God wiped it all out. You'd be drunk in your tent too. <laughs> now, Abraham, at age 75, he receives a promise that God will make a great nation out of him. It's not till he's 100 years old that he has a son. 25 years he waited for that promise, and there was a lot of trouble in between that time. There was a lot of trouble before he finally got it worked out in his head when he finally offered up his son Isaac. The fact that he listened to his wife, who said, go lay with Hagar, has caused nothing but thousands of years of misery and trouble in the Middle East. This is the Christian walk. Isaac, Abraham threw his wife under the bus, not once but twice. Isaac threw his wife under the bus once. All these men are doing this because they're afraid of their lives. They wouldn't be afraid of their lives for their lives if they trusted in God, if they trusted in the promises that God had made. If they did that, they wouldn't have done what they did. Of Jacob, he says, summing up, summing up his life, he says, few and evil are the days of the years of my life. And so I'm simply sharing with us here that life for Christians is difficult. We war against our fleshly lusts, trying to resist our sin. We try to look away from alluring Babylon. We are at war with Satan and all of his children of disobedience. We're at war. Scripture says that it is through tribulation that we must enter into the kingdom of God. And so that is our experience as we go through life. But again, the Lord says, be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. Christ has overcome the world, he has overcome sin, and he has overcome death. So at the very least, we should be, as the Apostle Paul says of himself, I have learned to be content in all things. And so I would be satisfied with that itself, to simply be content. I understand how things are going to go. I understand what the Lord has done, what things have happened in the past, and where they are going to go. And I know that God's kingdom is eternal, Christ has overcome everything, and I and all saints are going to glory. And that is how it ends. It ends for, with us in eternity, ever praising the Lord. So this morning, I'll say amen to that, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's table. Amen. amen.